So for 2,000 years now, something that has set genuine Christians apart in this world is that we have been a people who, by God's grace alone, we've been a people who have been able to have a different and unique and true way of looking at reality, no matter what temporarily happens in our lives or in our world. Meaning for thousands of years, Christian brothers and sisters, just like you and me, have been able to to look above the, the fog or confusion of whatever's going on in their lives or in their world. And they've been able to live and be faithful all while having this massive vision of reality of what's really important and of even what's ultimately going on with this universe. They've had and we have a vision about what's true about the living God who rules the universe, about what the world and what we all really need, and we know what truly matters now and forever. And I say all that to begin here this morning on this passage in Hosea 2 because taking what we saw last time in Hosea in chapter 2, 1 through 16 and then combining it with what we're going to see this morning, these two things combined really give us in a nutshell the grand vision that the Bible gives us about ourselves, our world, and our God. Because think about it, to break down what we saw last time in Hosea, remember Hosea chapter 2 so far has been in some ways a tough and dark chapter. Just like life is tough and our hearts are honestly quite dark. And and this chapter has been like that because for the first 13 verses of Hosea 2, it's a chapter essentially about sin. About the seriousness of sin. And, And we as Christians believe that because Jesus himself believed that. Sin, which is in all of our hearts, really is devastating. It dishonors God, it hurts us and our world, and it's what's not the way it's supposed to be in this universe. So that was the beginning of Hosea 2. But then also what we saw in the middle of Hosea 2 was, if you were here a couple weeks ago, what I said was arguably, in my opinion, the most shocking transition in the middle of a chapter and maybe the most surprising conjunction in the whole Old Testament. And quickly, as a reminder, what we saw there was verse 13 at the end said about sin. Look down at your Bibles at the end of verse 13. The Bible says, She went after her lovers. And forgot me, declares the Lord. And that is a basic summary of all of verses 1 through 13 about Hosea and Gomer, about God and Israel, and it's about us and our sin as well. We're sinners. We forget God on our own. We want nothing to do with Him, and we go after our own lovers. Maybe we're religious naturally on our own. Maybe we're not religious, but in the end, the essence of sin is we want nothing to really do with the living God. But then the next word in God's word is shocking. This was a couple weeks ago. Look at verse 14. God responds to that with, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And and if you weren't here uh, a couple weeks ago and you're confused as to why that's so shocking, I just do encourage you to listen to that message on Hosea 2, 1 through 16 because what that transition word there, that word therefore shows us is stunningly beautiful. Because in short, what we see here clearly in God's word is that we're sinners, unfaithful to God on our own and we all do need to feel that and know that. And then though, God doesn't say here, but I will have mercy. 
That's true, but that's not what God's word says here. Nor does God say, you're unfaithful and you've abandoned me, therefore I must abandon you. That's what we deserve. But instead, verse 13 says, yes, you are such a sinner. I am such a sinner. But then in verse 14, God, the, the living, holy creator God says, you're such a sinner. Therefore, I will allure you and speak tenderly to you. Therefore, I will love you. <laughs> Meaning God loves sinners. God loves you. God loves me even in our sin. And, and so that was last time in Hosea. And in short, that is a big part, right, of the reality that we as Christians know and believe the truth of such love and grace. <laughs> because we know the world isn't right. We're not right. But we also know that the God who rules this world is a God of justice and fairness and he is a God of such grace and love. That's a huge part of the gospel of Jesus that we offer the world. And yet, that alone isn't all our vision of God and us and reality primarily consists of. It is true that grace and love towards undeserving broken people is at the heart of what we know to be true of reality. And again, we see that in the gospel of Jesus. But also what's true of our vision of reality, church, is that this God of ours not only comes and saves people in his love, but then also in that relationship because of that real love of his, he promises and does things for his people. Things that you and I as sinners could never deserve. And in short, it's that that we're going to see here in our passage that now ends Hosea 2. God is going to promise so many things to those he saves and he loves. And just so you know, this actually makes a lot of sense concerning where we are in Hosea. Because as you heard, we're in the middle of this paragraph here in verse 17. And that might seem strange to start in the middle of a paragraph. But the reason for that is because, as you can see, as we talked about last time, in verse 16, this chapter almost climaxes there with this idea of the marriage relationship being restored. And that's the climax of this chapter. And that's the climax of us with our Lord. Our relationship with God is restored in Jesus. But Hosea 2 doesn't end in verse 16. It could have. But instead, after that relationship being restored, what we'll see this morning in verses 17 through 23 is amazingly in just these seven verses. Then God says the words, I will, 12 times in just these seven verses. Basically promising, if you're following, what he will now do for his bride that he loves and saves. And as I said, that makes sense in Hosea because the marriage is restored and now though, like a husband making vows to his wife, these 12 I wills are 12 vows from God to his people, which shows us that our God doesn't just love us in word, church, but out of his marriage-like commitment and love, he also promises to do some amazing things for us. His, his love takes action. And that's a big part of what we're going to see this morning. But finally, and one, one last thing really before we begin, even that's not all of Hosea 2 that we're going to see this morning. Because even that isn't the full vision of what Christians have had for thousands of years. Because if you're following, yes, our vision of reality is number one, we're sinners. And God, though, really loves sinners. He loves you. He loves me. And he shows that in the gospel of Jesus. And number two, we know that in reality, the living God in his love then promises to do so many things for his people and for his universe. But also finally, number three, we also know and cherish the reality that we know that our God doesn't just do this for us, but he does this for people 
all over the world. And that's then the last thing we're going to see here in Hosea 2. And if you're curious, that's why we chose this Sunday to be Mission Sunday. Because we do have these missionaries we're supporting. We want us all to know about them and especially to pray for them. But the reason today is Mission Sunday is because God himself in Hosea 2 here ends with this vision of him not just saving a bride and loving her and promising things to her, but it particularly ends with this hint that this is available for people everywhere. That people anywhere and everywhere can go from and will go from not God's people to God's people. That all finally brings us to our text. So we're in verses 17 through 23. And quickly as an outline, just how we'll go through this. We're going to have two simple sections together. Two sections. As for what they are, first, we're going to focus on what God promises. Looking at all those I wills. And then second, we'll see who God promises this to. And again, there we'll see that he promises this to anyone from all over the world who trusts in Jesus. But I will let you know in that second section, we'll especially talk about how this all applies to missions and even to you and me. So in summary, two sections, what God promises, who he promises it all to. But all that said, church, let's now dive in and finally begin our first section together. And here again, we're seeing what God promises. And there's a lot of promises here. And just as a quick side note, as you're about to hear all these, it is true that in Hosea here, in context, God is promising these things to ethnic Israel. But I want you to know that we know from the New Testament that now it's anyone who's in Jesus Christ who is the true Israel. It's anyone in him who receives God's promises as well. Because as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, quote, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in, in Jesus. So if you're in Jesus, these promises apply as well. And there are 12 I, am, or 12 I will statements here, but to break this down, what we're going to do is we're going to see that there's essentially four overarching promises that God makes here. Like a husband talking to his spouse, there's a lot of I wills, but if we had to break it down, there's four overarching things. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take those one by one. And so let's dig in and cherish these, cherish these promises together, church. And first, we'll begin in verse 17. So look down at your Bibles, verse 17. God promises, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. So in short, this is a promise here from our God to remove idolatry from his people. Right, and to us, hearing that word idolatry, and especially hearing that line of removing the bales from her mouth, that may seem foreign to us, and so it might appear at first like something that we, doesn't, we don't think really applies anymore. But in reality, this promise from God here really matters and applies more than we know. Because even though probably none of us in this room naturally on our own were probably worshiping some foreign gods like Baal before we came to know Jesus, still, as we probably know, the Bible's clear that each of us in our sin naturally, though, is idolatrous. All of us were idolatrous and all of us still still struggle with idolatry. And that is because in our sin, like they did back then, we have our gods. Each of us. We all naturally in our sin do live for and, and wrongly exult and even worship so many things in this creation. And, and we're all different. But for you, whether it be money or success or comfort or, or really exalting how we appear to others or politics or even good things like our families or our kids or things like sports, or, or good health, or food, or even just worshiping ourselves, or any combination of those things. I, all of us 
on our own, we, we make those sort of things ultimate things. Where we elevate things that aren't God, good and bad things, remember, to the place of God, which not only dishonors God, but it hurts us and hurts our world. That's sin. That, that's idolatry. And that's why God's first promise here to his spouse and to us in Christ is that he will remove the idolatry from us. And in one sense, that is now true for us as Christians. We are people who now worship Jesus. We no longer live for those things ultimately. But instead, through the new birth, we are changed. And we're people who do genuinely want to live for and love Jesus and love God above all, which is what we were made for. But not only that, but as you can see, God also says here that one day in the future, these false gods, these idolatries won't even be remembered anymore. And I think that's even a little picture of how we'll be like forever in glory. Uh, Part of our happiness in eternity, brothers and sisters, is that there will be no more idolatry. (laughs) So that's the first overarching promise. Leads us now to the second overarching promise. And now this will just be verse 18. Look down your Bibles, verse 18. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. So now out of all these promises we're going over this morning, that one may sound the weirdest to us because we may wonder, why is God making a covenant with the animals and the birds and the creeping things? Right? And it is confusing at first, but in brief, just understand this, just consider a couple things. First, just think about how before this, actually if you look up in the same chapter in Hosea 2.12, God said there, because of sin, quote, I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And so in the Bible, part of the punishment we deserve is that the animals in creation turns against us. And therefore, this promise in verse 18 here is partly a reversal of the punishment that we deserve. But then second, and maybe more basically, not only that, but notice just in general what this promise sounds like. You probably hear with all that talk of beasts of the fields and birds of the heavens and creeping things on the ground. Because what that is supposed to remind us of is the creation account, right? God's creation of the world and God's creation that we all know now because we live in it that isn't right, that's cursed, And so in short, to understand this, God now here is promising that he'll make a covenant, a new relationship with creation here, creation that has been cursed. Why? Well, to reverse that curse. And that's then explained in the second half of this verse, in that second sentence, because God makes a covenant. He promises with the animals of creation, and especially animals that will hurt us like beasts and creeping things. And then he says, And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And and if a lot of that was confusing, that's then, brothers and sisters, what this promise is really about. It is a reversal of the curse in all of creation, and especially in the animal world. And it is a reversal of the violence that the curse brought about in the human world as well. And why? Also that we once again will have true safety. Security, that's the point. And that then is a promise that hasn't been fully fulfilled yet either. Because in the gospel of Christ, we know that Jesus has come, but he's soon going to come back and then all of this is going to happen. But it hasn't happened yet. But take heart, brothers and sisters, it will. (laughs) 
Just, just think about it. Soon Jesus is going to come back and God and we, his people, will be living in a different relationship with all of creation. As this world will no longer be a place of insecurity and death and fear from nature or from people. Instead, this universe will be a place of security and safety. The bow, the sword will be abolished. Death and wars will end. And you and I in Christ will get to be a part of that universe. As it was all meant to be. And it'll happen because God promises to us his bride that he will make that happen for us. Because it's amazing. That's what he says in verse 18. He says, I will make for them this covenant. It's incredible. So this is the third overarching promise. This one's going to take us back now to this main analogy of marriage. And for this, we're going to be in both 19 and 20. So look down your Bibles, verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And now those are some of the sweetest words in this whole book of Hosea. Because we know from the last time in Hosea that God loves us, even in our sin. And he brings us back to him. But now, but now the question almost is, yet yeah, in our relationship with God, what is it like? And that was a question, especially also for Israel back then as well, because in a sense, they did have a relationship with God. We know that in the Old Testament, they had a covenant with God, but the old covenant wasn't enough. They, they needed more. That's what our Old Testament show us. And then, that, and then that's actually why here, as you can see, you probably noticed that language of betrothal is used. It's interesting because God betrothing his people again shows us that on the one hand, while he is taking them back, yet also in another way, this is a new relationship that he's promising. And that's why one commentary I read this week pointed out that this language of betrothal is actually a big hint at a new covenant coming. Meaning God was in a relationship with ethnic Israel, yes, but what he promises is a new relationship, a new covenant, a new betrothal to come. And as we know, that is now fulfilled in Christ, in the new covenant that we're a part of. It is fulfilled in the New Testament, which, which I don't know if you knew this, but the word testament is just another word for covenant or relationship. But all that being said, what, so what is this new covenant? What, what is this betrothal between us and God like? Well, three main things. Number one, you can see in verse 19, this relationship God has with his people is forever. And that's important because that means, let's bring it home to us, it means that our relationship with the living God isn't temporary or fickle. Right? It, isn't, it isn't dependent, for example, on you and I being good enough so we can have God on our side for as long as possible. Not at all. Instead, God himself says he betrothes us to himself forever. Number two, we see more about what this betrothal is like in that second sentence of verse 19. Quote, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. And important to note is those qualities there are clearly God's qualities, not ours. It's God's righteousness, God's justice, steadfast love and mercy that are being talked about. That's what our relationship with God is like. And both of those pairs matter because righteousness and justice, if you're wondering, means that in our relationship with the living God, God is still just. He's righteous. He forgives us injustice as Jesus died for us. And God keeps caring about justice. The living God is a righteous God, a fair God, and a God who will make all wrongs right. And that is a good thing. 
And then though, along with that, the pair of steadfast love and mercy is hugely important as well. And we know that. Because God not only is a righteous God, but he's a God who loves us. He's merciful towards us. He's our father and friend. And we see that in the gospel of Jesus as well. Right? Jesus' death, not only injustice forgives our sins, but Jesus' death shows us God's love in a profound way as well. Which leads to number three in this uh, promise about God's relationship with us. And that's all of verse 20. And really look down. This whole verse in a way summarizes, I think, what it's like to have a relationship with God. (laughs) Really, because as for God here in verse 20, you can see he's faithful. He betrothed us to himself in faithfulness. And that word faithfulness is all by itself because it's supposed to summarize that God is not only righteous and just and merciful and loving once, but he will continue to be those things towards us, right? Meaning our God is faithful, consistent. He's loyal in this covenant relationship of ours. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And he'll never stop being righteous and loving toward us. But but what about us though? Well, this is quite interesting because in verse 20 there, this is really one of the only non-I will statements about us in this whole section. Because God, he will do so much. That's what this is all about. But what about us? Well, as you can see, it's so simple. At the end of verse 20, God says, And you shall know the Lord. That's it. And that idea of knowing in the context of marriage is supposed to have a strong ring of intimacy to it. Right? Because the picture is God betrothes us to himself in this new relationship based on his righteousness and love. And he continues to be faithful to us. And so, so what about us? Well, simply said, we have the privilege of intimately knowing this God. As, as our King, our Savior, our friend, as Father, Jesus, Spirit. And as we know again, that is especially what has come to pass in the gospel. Right? Our relationship with God, with Jesus, is primarily, I hope you know, it's about what he did for us. It's about who he is. But then what about us in this relationship? Well, we have the privilege of knowing the Lord Jesus. And then one day, we will have the privilege of knowing him even more when we see him face to face. Which is why, by the way, eternity is forever. Because it will take eternity to know this infinite God of ours. So that's the third overarching promise. Finally, sticking with us, leads to the fourth and last overarching promise. And for this now, we're going to be in verses 21 through just the first line of verse 23. So not all of it, but just the first line. Look down at your Bibles, verse 21. And in that day... I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land. And now, as you can hear, that promise again relates to creation. And sure, it really does build on what we saw in verse 18 about creation because if you remember in verse 18, the promise was essentially that God is going to reverse the curse. And it's true, one day he will do that and the new heavens and new earth and we will live in safety. God will do that. But then amazingly, building on that, what's also true about God's promise concerning creation is what we see here in verses 21 through 23. And what is that? Well, in short, there's a lot that could be said here, but for the sake of time, as you can see, it's fascinating because God here in these verses now talks to the earth and to the heavens. And in basic, he calls those the earth and the heavens, to do what? Well, to bless his people. (laughs) 
He, he answers the earth and the heavens and they shall answer Jezreel, which remember in Hebrew just means God sows. And so the point here is God will call on the earth and the heavens to sow and grow and shower blessings. Blessings symbolized by grain, wine, and oil on his people. And finally, I hope you know that is a big part of what our relationship with God forever will be like. Because as for now, we, we are not promised those things. Jesus makes that clear. Trusting, is Jesus, trusting in Jesus is not a way, according to Jesus, in this life for now, to get wealthier rich at all. I hope you know that. But still, the truth also is that when the curse is fully removed from this creation, and we are living here on this renewed earth without idolatry, with God, in our new covenant with him, based on his righteousness and justice and mercy and love. It's not just that we will be saved and loved, but also in all of that, man, we are going to be so blessed. <laughs> the living God is going to call upon all of creation and tell it, creation, now bless my people. It's an amazing promise. So church, I know there's a lot, but that is these four overarching promises in this section. And it's most of Hosea 2 here. God, God takes sinners in. He loves them. That's what we saw last time in Hosea. But then also God promises to remove idolatry, remove the curse, a new covenant that he'll bless his people for their good and for his glory. And one last time, as we know, because Jesus and his apostles clearly taught this, I hope you know that this has partially been fulfilled in Christ as Jesus did bring the new covenant. But also, again, it's very clear in the New Testament that this is waiting to be fully fulfilled when Jesus comes back. Which is why, and I hope you're feeling this, it's why from the very beginning, the church has always cried out, Maranatha, right? Come, Lord. Because if we really believe all of this to be true, which we should, then we should not only love our God no more, but we really can't wait until he comes back. So that's our first and, much, and our longest section. That's what God promises. And again, that's most of Hosea 2. But that now does lead us to our second section. And this is the last few lines of this chapter. And here again, we're going to see more about who God promises us to. And as we've been saying, we already kind of now know the answer to this because we know that God promises this to anyone from all over the world who will trust in Jesus. But I want us to see this in Hosea itself and then being Mission Sunday, I just want to make one major point to conclude about missions which will apply all of this to us as well. One major point about missions. But first, let's just read the ending now of Hosea chapter 2 and we'll focus on those last three lines. So look down your Bibles, the last three lines. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So, so who does God make these promises to? Well, again, as we talked about a few weeks ago, if you were here from Hosea 1, yes, this is a promise made to ethnic Israel in context. And now ethnic Israelites are absolutely included in the gospel in the new covenant if they trust in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. But also, notice, God more generally says here that he promises all of this to people who are not my people, who he says will make become my people. And as we talked about more in depth a few weeks ago from Hosea 1, we know, divinely inspired, that this verse is hinting at Jews and the nations and Gentiles like you and me coming to know the living God because it's actually the Apostle Paul himself who in Romans 9, Romans 9 takes Hosea 1 verse 10 and takes Hosea 
2 verse 23 here to show that God all along intended his gospel and his promises not just for ethnic Israel but for the nations as well. That's how the Apostle Paul interprets this verse. And this means that people from all over the world, God is saying here, will go from not knowing God to knowing God. From not receiving mercy to being loved by God, saved by God, receiving God's promises. And as the last line of Hosea 2 says, people from all over the world, God promises, will go from not knowing God to saying to the living God, you are my God. And so church, that's what we see here in Hosea. But as I said, that now leads us as we come to a close to how this all connects to missions and, and missions Sunday and how it even applies to us. And on the one hand, I'm sure you're tracking, it's kind of obvious, right? But also, as I said, I just want to make out one, one major point concerning missions. One major point, it'll apply to us, and it's this. And so, so we've seen here in Hosea 2, if you've been tracking so much of what we believe, right, that we're sinners, but, but the living God really does love sinners. He speaks tenderly to sinners. He rescues sinners. He promises so much to sinners, and this is for the world. And so that said, the one major point about missions I want to make is that in basic... I hope we all know that, that it is this. This flow, really, of this whole chapter and the truth, the reality that this talks about, it is this that is the impulse for missions. It's that simple. It's the impulse of missions. Meaning Hosea 2, in a nutshell, is a little picture of the impulse for why missions exist and why missions is really important. And for us, it's the impulse that we as Christians even if we aren't missionaries ourselves, are to have more and more. That, that's the point I hope we live with, leave with. And that's a bit confusing. Here, here's what I mean. So, so we have introduced a handful of missionaries this morning. Right? And they all have different backgrounds and all working in different areas of the world. For example, once again, people like Jim and Angela May are working in Japan in church planting, which is really important because Jesus' plan to reach the world with the gospel is the local church. And yet they're doing that hard work in an area like Japan. And then other missionaries like Peter and Mary and Fretheim and Bob and Marcelle McDonald are working in places where there's a lot of basic needs for things like help for women and children, even water. And so they're doing that in the name of Christ, which is a beautiful thing. And then, and then someone like our brother Alex Griffith, who again has such a great story. He's working in Mexico trying to translate the Bible into their language so that they can understand God's good news for themselves. And then finally, our brother Chinta Emanuel is working trying to reach Hindus with the gospel. And so, again, all of those missionaries are different. And they all have different stories. And they're all working in different areas and different focuses. But the point is, what I know unites them and what fuels them is what we have been talking about this morning. It is this flow that we've seen in Hosea chapter 2 and the truth in it and that essentially is this gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel that Hosea was pointing us to and it's the gospel, yes, that we're such sinners and the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. But there's a real God, God of justice and grace and he saves his people and he makes cosmic promises to his people and to his universe. And God then also makes it clear that anyone can get in on this. Anyone from anywhere all over the world can go from not my people to my people. And so the point is, again, that's what's motivating those missionaries. And the point for us is that that is what should motivate us more and more in our lives as well. I mean, really, I mean, if we think, think about it, if we really believe this, 
that has to motivate us to live differently and live more passionately for Jesus in our lives and our world. It has to. Because, and now to really bring this home to you and I, let's just be honest. We can, we, we can come to church, we can talk about missionaries all day, and we, we can even be really thankful in our hearts right now for what these missionaries are doing. But also, you know, day in and day out for most of us, especially as we live in a culture filled with so much entertainment and seeming craziness and so much affluence in many ways and so many opinions and, and politics and sports and news and social media, and then, and then add to that, our own issues and jobs and our families and our pains and our struggles and our schedules and more. And yes, a lot of that does, of course, matter. But again, let's be honest, with all of that that surrounds us, what often happens is that we, even as Jesus-loving Christians, we can forget what really matters. What is most important right now for billions of people what is most important for us, for everyone around us, and what really matters now and forever in this universe, and that is this gospel of Jesus. This gospel that these missionaries believe, that you and I believe. The gospel that they're living for and that we're living for. And so church, that, that, that is our passage in Hosea, and that's this Mission Sunday. And so now, as we go from here, I, I just do pray, for myself included, that after all we've seen and heard this morning, Let's let Hosea 2 and this Mission Sunday, and let's let the fire that is clearly in these missionaries change us. And let's be thankful for their work. Let's support them in prayer. Really do that, just as we're supporting them financially as a church. But also, let's realize that their impulse on the mission field is to be our impulse as well. Because as we saw in Hosea 2, these missionaries believe, and as God tells us is the storyline of the universe, one last time really believe that the ultimate truth of the universe is that yes, our sin is great. We are so broken. We're worse than we know. And the world's sin is more hurtful and worse than we know. But the living God loves. He rescues. He saves. And in his saving love, he makes all these promises, especially to people in Christ, which can be anyone from anywhere. And so again, brothers and sisters, let's really believe this. And let's each personally let this global, global gospel of Jesus and of God's love be what fuels us and what we live for. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.